Amen. Awesome. All right, so I lived in England for a year after graduating high school. And I was a part of an international school up there. It was just for about six months. And in those years, I got to know a lot of different people from a lot of different places, uh, different nations, who didn't grow up where I grew up. One of them that comes to mind is my friend Bishwa. Even his, his name probably indicates to you he is not from Alton, New Hampshire. Um, Bishwa was from Kathmandu, Nepal. Um, I shared a room with Bishwa for maybe three months. And there was one night when we were going to bed and we were just talking. And uh, he was sharing with me how he was really wrestling, going back and forth over the question of whether or not when he goes back to Kathmandu, he would do an arranged marriage or, or choose somebody to marry. He had the freedom to make that choice, whether to let his parents choose or to choose himself. And he was honestly weighing out the pros and cons, trying to figure out which direction he would go. And as an 18-year-old, that was a little bit shocking to me. Um, I was thinking, you have the option to choose for yourself, and you would actually want your parents to choose for you. I think what it did for me, though, was it showed me that Bishwa didn't only uh, dress differently than me, not only uh, eat differently than me, he acted differently than me because he was from another place. He had a different culture, and he worked in a different way. His mind worked in a different way. And that was really clear with Bishwa. You knew Bishwa was from another place— than me, uh, just by seeing him from across the room. Like I said, the way he ate, the way he dressed, the way he looked. I had another friend named uh, Brendan, and Brendan, uh, his parents were from Calgary, Canada, uh, but they were missionaries in Malaysia. And, uh, you know, Brendan was a little bit different in the sense that you look at Brendan from across the room, and he looked exactly like me. He's just a white guy. Um, He dressed the same as me. He acted the same as me. You talked to him. He would uh, he would speak in the same way that, that I did, but after a little bit of time with Brendan, you would realize, wait a second, you are a little bit different. Uh, he thought a little bit different uh, than me. Because Brendan, you probe him just a little bit, you poke just under his, sur- his skin, and what you realize is, yeah, he looks like just a North American <laughs> on the surface, but he's Malaysian through and through. He grew up in that culture. He, d- he looks like he's from where I am from, but he's actually from another place. Bishwa fully could not hide it. Brendan, he was pretty clear, but only when you poked under the surface. Now, if we are in Christ, then we are a citizen of the kingdom of God. We are from another place, like Bishwa, but in fact, it's more like Brendan. Because even though we look like our neighbors, we are not like our neighbors. We've, we're new creations entered into a new kingdom. You were born here in this world, but you are no longer from here in this world. You live here, but this world is not your home. We might say that you are in the world, but you are not of this world. You, you're from another place. This place is not your home. And our otherness here, like I said, is less like Bishwa. It's more like Brendan. We look, we eat, we dress like everyone else around us, like our neighbors. But peek beneath the surface, look beneath our skin, you'll see that, yes, we think a little differently. And I hope that means we act a a little differently. We are not of this world. 
And now when we talk about world, the word world can be used in a number of different ways. Obviously, world can mean our planet, all right, our physical location. So John 1, chapter 9, it says this, the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. It's just talking about where we are. But we also see the word world used a little bit different just in the next verse, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Well, how can the planet know Jesus? No, it's not talking about location. It's talking about the people of this planet. The word world there is being used in the same way as it's used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, people of this world. Or the word world, the word world can be used in a different way. Not to talk about the planet uh, or the people, but to talk about the order of this world. Let me show you what I mean. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things of this world. I know maybe we're getting into the weeds here, but this is a little bit, this is really important to understand. There's nothing wrong with enjoying coffee watching football or liking sunsets. There's nothing wrong with loving the things in the world in that sense. What this is talking about is the fallen order of this world. Uh, Not loving, we might say, what is worldly. Because when we look at the scriptures, the scriptures, the, the Bible gives us a pretty clear, pretty sharp distinction between what is fallen and worldly and what is holy, what is godly. John 8, 32 says this, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Pretty clear distinction. James 4, 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That means hatred towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a pretty clear distinction. There's a fallen world on one hand, and there's a holy God on the other. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to follow in the footsteps of one who is not of this world. You're a citizen of heaven. This world is not your home. You're commanded, Romans 12, 2, not to be conformed to this world. We're told, Colossians 3, 2, to set your mind on things that are above, not on things of earth. So like Brendan, you may look like you're from here, but you're from another place. And as we come to John chapter 17, again, we're walking verse by verse through John 17 over the course of about 10 weeks. We're coming again to the end of Jesus' life, this final prayer in the upper room before he goes out to the garden to be betrayed. And what this prayer shows us pretty clearly is that Jesus knows that he's leaving his disciples in a pretty hard situation. He's leaving them, and he's leaving them far from home. He's leaving them, we might say, in exile. Us in exile. And as he prays, he's making arrangements for their care, asking the Father to keep them, to keep watch over them, to to guard them. And we saw that last week in verses 10 through 13. Keep, guard them against disunity. And then this week, verses 14 through 16, keep, guard them against the world keep and guard them against the world and, we might say, the ruler of this world. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus' prayer to the Father that he would guard us against the world and against the ruler of this world, the evil one, Satan.
Um, a sermon about Satan might not be very uplifting and happy. <laughs> but I, I do want to say this. Though we're going to talk about Satan, though we're going to talk about the realm, the power of Satan, though we're going to talk about this world, do listen to the end. <laughs> um, Satan's story now is not the end of Satan's story. So listen closely, and I hope that this is worshipful and encouraging uh, to you, even though we're digging into some what might seem like some strange and some foreign stuff, all right? So let's pray. We'll dive into uh, John 17, verses 14 through 16. Heavenly Father, again, open our eyes, our ears, soften our hearts, help us receive what it is that you have to say to us here. Lord, challenge us, change our way of thinking. May we leave uh, today with a greater perspective of what it looks like to live not just in the world, but in a world swathed in spiritual things. There is more to reality than what we can see and touch. May we think about that well today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me read it. Um, my fault, we don't have text today. Uh, I'd, like, I'd love to blame Rick. My fault. Awesome. All right, John 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Because we don't have it up here, let me read it again for us. Have it, your Bibles open in front of you. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, uh, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So in 1942, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a famous book called The Screwtape Letters. Uh, Screwtape Letters is actually his first real commercial success. It was really popular, even though it was a really strange book. Uh, you, might, you might know the book. Um, the idea behind the book is that it's a collection of make-believe letters between a senior devil and a junior devil uh, writing to each other in hell. And basically the idea is that this older devil is training this younger devil, mentoring this younger devil, on how that younger devil can deceive and trick humans. Uh, like I said, very popular. And the reason why this book was so popular is not because it really gives you a true window into the supernatural world, but because what this book does is it helps reveal some of the tactics of the enemy. Some of the things that Satan does in order to trick and to deceive people in, on, on earth. And this is, this is one thing that C.S. Lewis writes in one of these letters. In the letter from Screwtape to the junior devil, Wormwood, he says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which man can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What's he getting at? It's an interesting passage. You have to put yourself in the mind space of a demon. <laughs> Not something we do often, hopefully. Yeah. But what's he getting at? From the perspective of the devil, 
He is just as happy if somebody doesn't believe in him, doesn't believe in his spiritual attacks, as if somebody believes in him and is hyper-obsessed with the devil's work. Because either way, he wins. If he, the, the demon, this devil, if he's ignored, he's free to tempt away. Uh, th- we're not going to resist the devil if we don't believe he's even there. But on the other side, if, he's, if we get hyper-obsessed with him, he gets a foothold in our life, and he's free to corrupt us and lead us in the, dir- in the direction he chooses. And now the funny thing is, in 1942, um, I would suspect most people fall into the same mistake that we do today. That the vast majority of people in the Western world will fall into that first error. We're far more likely to deny the existence of a spiritual realm, to deny the existence of spiritual warfare, to deny the existence of Satan himself, than we are likely to get sucked into the occult. And I don't know who your neighbor is, but I imagine that if you're having a conversation with your neighbor and you throw into polite conversation that you believe in the existence of a devil and that that devil actually affects your day-to-day world, that your, your neighbor might take a half step back and knock on your door less. This isn't something that we're comfortable with in our, in our modern world. But the thing is, it's true of Christians as well, I think. And I'll talk about myself here. You can ask yourself if you think the same way I do. But I'm, I've been prone to think the same way. That even though I'm a firm believer in the fact that whatever the Bible says is true, and the Bible tells me consistently in no unclear terms that there is a spiritual realm and spiritual warfare and there are angels and demons and a devil, I really don't very often think of angels and demons and the devil playing a role in the affairs of my life. In fact, I get a little suspicious when people talk about it too much. I want, to pull, I, I want to take a half step back away from somebody who talks about the things of Satan too much. And I do want to say, just to call a spade a spade, that is a hypocrisy. Um, that is something I need to repent of, um, to actively change the way I think, to not just see this world as controlled by God, it is, but also influenced by these other spiritual beings. And my hesitation has nothing to do with what the Bible says. Like I said, the Bible is very clear. It has everything to do with my modern Western blinders. I have a really hard time thinking about the world in a non-scientific way, and yet there is more to the world than science. There are things that are supernatural. I believe that with all my heart. And the thing is about Jesus, when he prays here in this last prayer in the upper room, he does not have those modern Western blinders on. In fact, he uses some of his final breaths with his disciples to pray to the Father, to ask him to keep them from the evil one. In other words, to protect them from the devil. Because the devil, the evil one, is the ruler of this world. Jesus says that three times in John. John 12, 14, and 16, he's the ruler of this world. Paul calls the devil the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And I just want to be clear about that. Jesus and Paul, they're not saying that Satan is the ultimate ruler of all things. That rule's taken. They're not saying that Satan is a god. That rule's taken. There's only one. 
But what, Satan, but what they're saying is that Satan is the master of all things that fall into that third category that we were talking about when we were talking about the world. He is the one over. He is the master of all that is worldly. That all who like him are in rebellion against God. We might say that he's the leader of the opposition. That he's the chief revolutionary. That he deceived Adam and Eve in the beginning and he has been deceiving, lying, scheming, prowling, accusing, snaring ever since. But Christian, if you are a Christian here today, here's a really important point. Tune into this. Yes, Satan is the ruler of this world and yes, he is the God of this world, but you are not of this world. That's key. Yes, Satan is the ruler of this world. He's the God of this world, but he's not your ruler and he's not your God because we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. Remember that sharp distinction? Satan has no power on Jesus' side. Jesus has, the Satan has no power over the things which Jesus, sorry, Satan has no power over the things that Jesus has power over. And so with all that in mind, and I've been rambling for a while now, let's go back and read our text again, okay? With all that perspective, let's read our three verses. Join me in verse 14 through 16. He says, I have given them, the disciples, your word. That's what's different about them. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. For they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There's two groups and two masters. There's Jesus and those to whom Jesus has given the Father's word, in other words, believers. And on the other hand, there is the evil one and the world. So in 1780, the American Revolution was going on. And things were getting really heated, as you might know the story, uh, between America and England. And there was this one uh, time in the war where George Washington gave command of West Point to one of his generals. And this guy was high up in the military. You might know this story as well. He was a major general, given command of West Point. It was a key fort at that time in the Revolution. And this man was American-born. He was born in Connecticut, which might have been the problem, but we'll, we won't hang in there. His, he was a commander in the, Ameri- in the American military. Um, and he was planning to surrender the American forces at, at West Point to Britain. In other words, he was planning to be a traitor, to, to fight against his own people. That plot was discovered, and as you might know, people don't take kindly to traitors, and so he fled. He ran away to the British troops, and when he got to the British troops, the British troops rightfully embraced him as their own and gave him a role in their British military. And later on in the war, this general, this man, actually led forces against the nation in which he was born. You might not know the story, but you you probably know the name of this man. His name was Benedict Arnold. 
And ever since that day, his name is synonymous with being a traitor. For the last 233 years of American history, he has been seen as the quintessential traitor. He went to fight for the enemy. And now if you are somebody who was born in this world, who was faithful to the ruler of this world, but defected from your ranks to follow the command of a heavenly king, do not be surprised if the evil one and the world that he commands sometimes sees you as a Benedict Arnold. Do not be surprised that they might be upset about the fact that you are fighting for the enemy because you are. When you left the way of the world and joined up with Jesus, you changed teams. Armies don't take kindly to defectors. And now as we fight for the enemy, what we do is we join in the work of overthrowing the kingdom of darkness, right? We, We join in the work of shining the light of Jesus Christ into this world. We join in the prayer, praying, Father, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the exact opposite of what the ruler of this world would want. You are a traitor. Praise God. (laughs) But the other thing is that you are living behind enemy lines. And so it makes absolute sense that Jesus would pray what he prayed here. I'll read it one more time. John 17, 14 through 16. That I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He prays for our protection. Now, what do we do with all this? Because I think that from everything we've seen, it really helps, helps us get a bit of a context, really a better perspective of what it means to be living as a follower of Jesus Christ in this world, but how, how do we actually live differently, think differently, in light of that perspective? Three ways. Number one, we have open eyes. Number two, we have iron wills. And number three, we have tender hearts. If you're a note taker, this is where we're going the rest of our time. We have open eyes, we have iron wills, and we have tender hearts. So first, we have open eyes. I think I told you a little bit ago, um, the devil is perfectly happy with you thinking he doesn't exist. He is cool with that. He does not have insecurity issues. He is totally fine being overlooked. Um, And it makes his job easy. Um, I think it's in the letter to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, where um, Jesus says to resist him firm in your faith. Talking about the devil. Uh, Resist the devil firm in your faith. We have to fight against the prowling enemy. Um, we won't resist an enemy we don't think is there. <laughs> so he doesn't want us thinking about, it, about him. And this text, what it does is it opens our eyes to the true order of the universe. The reality is, and we talked about this in Daniel chapter 10, we live in the midst of a spiritual warfare, a cosmic world, a war with the world on one side and Christ's kingdom on the other. The world ruled by the evil one and God's kingdom ruled by Christ. And the day that we have become citizens of the kingdom of God, what we did is we hitched our wagon to the righteous king. But the other thing we have to remember, we hitched our wagon to the crucified king. 
And so Jesus explains in John 15, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as his own, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore, the world hates you. That's that's a good explanation. We follow a righteous king, so be righteous. We follow a crucified king, so expect to be crucified. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Christian, as you, as you enter back out into the world, enter back out into the world with your eyes open to the cosmic order of the universe. That's not an encouragement to be fatalistic. That's just an encouragement to remember there is more going on than meets the eye. There are spiritual forces for good and for evil. Yield to the Spirit inside you. Listen to his voice and resist the enemy. Because John 16, says this, In this world you will have tribulation, but that verse goes on, right? So number one, have eyes open. Number two, have an iron will. Okay, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. When we go through those doors, in a sense, are we going out as sheep to the slaughter? Yes. But that's not the end of the story. (laughs) Because we know how the story goes. We know how the story ends. John says it really clearly in his letter, 1 John 2, 7. He says the world is passing away along with its desires. The world is not eternal like us. And these two things go together. When our eyes are open to the true order of the universe, we are therefore able to have an iron will. Hebrews 13, 6, so we can, be, we, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? In other words, in other words why would we fear little old men when we have an all-powerful God? It's not just irrational, it's, it's, it's insane. <laughs> To fear people who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fearing God and not fearing your neighbors is actually just simply logical. And why would we fear the evil one when we know how his story ends? We hear at the end of his story described in Revelation 20 verse 10, where we read that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the prophets, false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. His, his, he might rule now in the hearts of the world. That's not where his story is going to end. That throne will be vacated and filled with someone else when the kingdom of God covers every inch and every heart. Or maybe we can just take the words from Martin Luther, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. When our eyes are open, we can endure with an iron will. But now the last part. Open eyes, iron will, tender heart. Because you could have... Uh, been listening to this whole sermon thus far and been nodding along to this whole message, and you could leave thinking, great, so my neighbor is basically Satan. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, 
And if, if that's the way you leave, like, we're, we're missing something, right? Because that, that would be a terrible conclusion. To walk out of here thinking, okay, great, so everyone is just the devil. Um, I'm going to bubble up with my Christians and wait to die. Um, if that's what Jesus wanted, he would have told us to do that. That is not what Jesus told us to do. Jesus looked upon these crowds, people to our knowledge, we don't know exactly, but people to our knowledge who might have very soon later been shouting crucify him. He looked upon these crowds not with the shake of his head and the roll of his eyes, but rather he looked on them with compassion like sheep without a shepherd. That's how he viewed people in the world. He came to love them, and he came to seek and save them. And so even if our neighbor is on the side of the enemy, even if they do not follow Jesus, even if they truly do hate us, as Jesus says they will, our mission is to follow Christ's example, to love them, <laughs> and to call them to life. I, I recently, um, you might have seen this, you might have heard the story of the um, the missionary nurse in Haiti who's, who was uh, kidnapped about two, three weeks ago. She's from New Hampshire. Um, she just about nine days ago, I think, released a video uh, in French speaking to uh, the, the gang that, that kidnapped her. Um, and I put it up on our Facebook if you're interested in seeing it. I would encourage you to. Because in this video, her name is Alex Dorsainville. Um, she's speaking to these, these gangsters that, that kidnapped her for 13 days, and in the video, she speaks directly to them, and she forgives them. Um, they kidnapped her, they held her for ransom, and her daughter, I think, and she forgives them. And then what's beautiful about it is she goes on to share the gospel with them, clearly in French in the video, to say, if it was up to me, I would open the doors of my clinic so you could come back in and get treatment. And then, she's, and then she says, someday I hope to hug you in heaven. That's one of those things that we can't just do by gritting our teeth. That's one of those things that requires a true heart change. To be able to release vengeance into the God who will give vengeance, knowing that he and his goodness and his wisdom can work two things together that we don't know how they go hand in hand. We're unable to issue that kind of forgiveness without the true transformation of the gospel in our own hearts. The world that Jesus says is under the power of the evil one is the same world that God so loved. The same world that he sent his son to save, and it's the same world that he does not take us out of, but he sends us into with this message of forgiveness and freedom and of hope. Uh, there's a book, and I'll, I'll close here. There's this book. Uh, it's actually in our library. It's called Evangelism as Exiles. It's by a guy named Elliot Clark, and he's been a missionary in, in Muslim cultures, I think, for quite a while. And he's writing this book to us in America, us in the West, at least, and he says, he's basically asking the question, how do we reach our lost neighbors in a world where we seem to be so strange and foreign to them? In other words, how do we do evangelism when we're foreign here? That's a good question. Because he talks in this book a lot about the loss of favor, the loss of privilege that we might have as, as Christians in this world. And he talks about our response to that, 
talking about how we increasingly find ourselves in places where what we believe or who we follow might earn us not love but hate. And this is what he says. I'll read it to you. As freedom slips away and suffering draws near, we must not be known as an exasperated people, always ready to give an answer for our protest and grievance. We must not be a people always longing for the past, for the glory days, but as those looking to a certain and truly glorious future, when we'll have opportunities to reason with others about, and sorry, then we'll have opportunities to reason with others about the hope that we possess. I think that's something maybe some of us need to hear, because there's a lot to be frustrated about in the world. But here's his point, very clearly and very simply. If we don't live in this world as hope-filled people, <laughs> if the slightest whiff of hate sends us spiraling, if our tone as Christians is that of hopelessness in the world, then why would the world come to us for a message of hope? And the answer is it wouldn't. We live in a world hated, according to Jesus' words, but called, called to return with love, called to return with a message of hope. And so, Christian, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open to the cosmic war that we are in the middle of. But do not despair. Have an iron will. Have courage. Knowing how the story ends, your story ends, and how the devil's story ends. And then finally, have a tender heart. That even if the world hates you, show them the love of Christ. Speak to them the word that Jesus has given to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love the fact that even though this, this topic is, it seems foreign to us. We don't talk about it very often because we're not very comfortable with it. We don't really know what to do with it very often. But we love the fact that even when we dive into it, when we fix our eyes on it, sink our teeth into it, what we find is reason to hope. And that reason to hope is found once again in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why are we surprised? And so, Father, as we go out into this world, I pray that we would go out knowing, yeah, we're not going to make any friends with the world because of our allegiance to you. But that doesn't mean that we can't go out sharing your love, shining your light, courageously knowing that no matter what comes, you will be glorified and you will win. We find comfort in that. We find hope in that. And maybe most, finally, we find endurance in that. Thank you, Lord, that there is nothing out of your control. We rest there, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.